God is all good. And three, there is much misery in the world. He says that a God who is all powerful, but left much misery in the world would not be all good. He says an all good God in a world containing much misery would not be an all powerful God. A world containing a God who was both all powerful and all good would contain no misery at all. And so his argument, to summarize, is if God is all good and he's also all powerful, then why is there misery in the world? He said if there is misery in the world, then either that means God is either not all good, maybe he's all powerful, but he's not all good, so he allows misery, or he says that God is all good, but he's not all powerful. He can't actually change what's going on in the world. And there have been offshoots of Christianity that have embraced this and said that God actually doesn't know what the future holds, and so he can't change it, so therefore that's why there's uh, misery in the world. We would deny that and say that is a false teaching. And what I will argue for this morning is that God is both powerful and good. Because that's a real tension that we have um, as followers of Jesus. We see misery in the world, but then we read scripture and we see clearly in the text that God is powerful and he is good. And so I'm going to argue for that this morning, that he is in fact good and he is in fact powerful. And that because God has shown us mercy through his goodness and power, we must respond with faith and obedience. So if God is, in fact, if what I'm arguing is true, if he is, in fact, good and powerful, then there are implications. And some of those implications we will see in the text, but on a broad level, we must respond with faith and with obedience. So as we march through this text, I think we're going to um, see a few things. And one of the things that I think the text will help us do is to walk with those who are suffering. It will equip us to walk with those who are currently in a valley, currently suffering. And then it will also equip us to be able to say in this passage or in the song that we read, we're saying Christ is mine forevermore. It will equip us to truly say that mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good, but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes the work in me. If we understand what's going on in this passage, we will be able to sing that with absolute genuity. We'll be able to sing it with absolute confidence that God is good and he is powerful and he will complete the work that he starts. So some background, uh, we've been marching through the book of Mark, uh, we've been going passage by passage through the gospel of Mark, and uh, Mark was written in about the 50s or 60s AD by a man named John Mark, and it was written while he was in Rome, he's writing to the Roman church, and there are multiple smaller themes, but the broad theme that we'll see throughout this book is that it is God restoring his wayward people. We see different instances of that, but the broad theme is that God is restoring. He's bringing back his wayward people. And so last week, we uh, looked at the passage where Jesus is on a boat crossing over the Sea of Galilee. 
and we saw the disciples as this storm, these disciples who many of them are experienced fishermen, this massive storm rises up, which wasn't uncommon for storms to rise up in the Sea of Galilee, as Ben pointed out. And, but this one was so massive that even these experienced fishermen were not capable to handle it. And they go to Jesus and say, don't you care that we're going to die? Do you not care? You are sound asleep and we're about to die over here. Do you not even care? And Ben so eloquently pointed out that, yes, if they only knew how much Jesus cared. Yes, he's willing to calm the storm, but he's doing so much more by coming down and providing life, not just for their physical bodies, but for their spiritual. The calming of the storm, we saw Jesus exercising power over the natural world. And this week, we see him exercising power over the spiritual. So last week, we saw a violent storm raging out on the sea. And this week, we will see a violent storm raging within a man. And so there are four points that um, I have in this passage. And we're going to look at them kind of as um, separate scenes, so to speak, scenes throughout the story. Um, I love a good movie. I'm not trying to tie this to a movie or anything like that. But um, view it as like these separate scenes that we're looking at. So we're going to look at the introduction. We're going to look at the interaction. We're going to look at the result and then the response. The introduction, the interaction, the result, and the response. And you can follow along in your bulletins. Those four points are outlined for you. So before we go any further, let me pray. God, we are grateful. We're grateful to gather. We're grateful to look at your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would equip me in this moment to speak clearly. And where I fall short, please give this congregation understanding of what the text says. Lord, help us to live in light of it. We pray. We pray that you would equip us to be faithful citizens of this kingdom and citizens of the kingdom of God. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we see the introduction. This is in the first five verses, and in verse two, we are introduced to this man. So if you see in verse two, as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, as soon, as soon as he steps out of the boat, we see this man with an unclean spirit coming out of the tombs. Now, we see Mark saying there's a man with an unclean spirit. Now, there's already a little bit of a tension because in the Gospel of Matthew, a parallel passage, we see him saying there are two men. And so something to understand as you're reading Scripture, especially the New Testament with the Greek style of writing that these authors are writing in, is that they are writing to try to make a theological point. So we in the West are used to very chronological, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And because of the culture that we're in, we will crucify somebody if they get it out of order or if they miss out a slight detail. The writers of the New Testament are writing in generalities to make a theological point. And so when Matthew says that there are two, and Mark says that there's a man, 
they're making two different points. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And in Deuteronomy 19, um, the, the law requires that there be at least two people to establish a charge. So Matthew's writing to the, a Jewish audience, and he's saying that there were two demon-possessed men who came out. Reason being is because the first thing these demon-possessed men say is they proclaim who Jesus is, son of the most high God. And so if there's two of them, then it establishes that. It makes it a fact in Jewish culture that two people in the same scene confirm the same thing. Therefore, we can take that testimony as valid. Mark is making a slightly different point. And so he's only writing about one of the men that were there. So it's kind of an offshoot. But as you read parallel passages like that, don't want you to think, oh, they got it wrong. Um, one of them is, is false. It's just they're coming at it from a different perspective because they're making a different point. So even though Matthew says two men, Mark says one. So for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to refer to it as one man. Okay. Now this one man, as soon as Jesus gets off the boat, is almost supernaturally drawn out of the tomb. He's almost a, just without even, because it's not like he, Jesus showed up on a cruise liner, you know what I mean, with the big, the big horn. Anybody been on a cruise? Okay, so like there's the big horn, right? Jesus is not showing up on one of those things. He's showing up on a little boat. And so this, he gets to, to land. He gets to the side of the Sea of Galilee that he's going to. And this man just feels drawn out. And he goes immediately to Jesus. And he says in verse 3, um, no, excuse me, where am I looking here? Came out of the tombs, no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with the chain. And so he says that, um, who are you? What do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, as soon as he comes out, he's proclaiming who Jesus is. Now, something I want us to notice about this man before we get down there is that this guy in verse 3 is literally the image of unrestrained evil. They tried to bind him. They tried to bind him with chains. It says he lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain. And so if we look closely at that passage, we see at least three things that sin does when it goes unchecked. We see that it isolates us from others. This man was in the tombs away from everyone. He was in a place of death. And then two, it harms us. He is crying out and he's cutting himself with stones. And then it also harms others. So sin, when unchecked, when unrestrained, it isolates us, it harms us, and it harms others. So one of the reasons why we gather each Sunday is for the sake of reminding one another of what the gospel is. Because we acknowledge humbly that apart from us gathering, we will easily forget. And Jesus shows up, and this man is just effectually, supernaturally drawn out of the place of death to Jesus. And so now we see the interaction that takes place. Jesus, whom we as readers are fortunate because we get to see exactly the whole story. And so we know who Jesus is. At that time, they don't have that privilege. But we see Jesus being the ultimate epitome of everything good interact with unrestrained evil. So I would have loved to be able to go back in time and see this interaction. But what does 
the demon-possessed man do? As soon as he comes out, he kneels. You see that in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. This welcome committee from hell welcomes Jesus, and they kneel down and proclaim who he is. Son of the Most High God. And James 2.19 talks about how the demons know. The fact, that, <clears throat> the fact that this demon-possessed man came out and immediately knew who Jesus was is evidence that he was possessed by a demon. Because no one had been re- revealed Jesus' identity to this point. And so he comes out, and he reveals Jesus' identity, hence showing that there are some demonic forces here. Because the demons know, the demons believe... James 2, but they tremble. And we see some trembling happening here. And so this demon names Jesus, where in Mark 1 and 3, we saw demons do the same thing. They named him, and immediately he stopped them. He says, don't name me. He says, be quiet. almost said something more mean there. But he said, stop talking, and I will do the talking. I'm going to be the one who names you. But in this passage we see Jesus doesn't stop him. Why? Why is it that in Mark 1 and 3, Jesus stops the demons from talking and naming who he is and revealing his identity, but in Mark 5, he doesn't? Well, commentators tend to agree that the reason behind that is because he is now in a Gentile region, whereas previously he was in a Jewish region. So if a demon reveals who he is, it could almost subvert what he's doing in accomplishing being the Jewish Messiah. Whereas if he's in a Gentile region and someone reveals who he is, Jesus, son of the most high God, Gentiles are, I mean, they don't have the same understanding. They're not looking at the Old Testament text. They're not anticipating a Messiah. And so Jesus doesn't have to fix any false teaching there. So he allows the demon to speak. But the demon speaks and we see that trembling that we referenced in James 2. The demons believe and tremble. The demon begs him. And we're going to see a series of begging in this passage. This is the first instance. He says, don't torment me. Don't torment me. This demon recognizes that his day is coming. Matthew, uh, in this parallel passage, adds in it, uh, don't torment me before the time. So these unclean spirits, they know that their time is coming. They know that there's going to be a day when they are going to be judged, when the good judge of the world is going to judge rightly. And they know that their time is coming. It's like this demon coming out and saying, I know who you are. I I am here. I'm I'm doing some destruction in this man. But don't bring judgment yet. Just not yet. It's like going to your parents and saying, I know you're going to be mad, (laughs) but dot, dot, dot. You know you said something, or you know you did something that they're not pleased with. I have plenty of instances of that. Don't be mad, but I broke the window. Don't be mad, but broke a second window. Don't be mad, but broke a third window. Don't be mad, but I broke the sliding glass door. So I'm familiar with this. I can resonate. These demons come out, and they're essentially saying, don't be mad, at least not yet. You're a little bit mad, but don't torment us yet. We know that day is coming. Just just not yet. Send us somewhere else. And these demons know that that's coming. We see passages throughout Scripture. Jude 6, 
We see the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. He has kept an eternal change in chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Judgment coming for these demons. Acts 10.42, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. John 5.22, the father, in fact, judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. Demons know this. The son shows up on the shore and they're saying, wait a second. Is this, this isn't the time, right? We know the judgment's coming. Just, just hold on. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These demons know that their judgment day is coming. They believe that wholeheartedly. And the truth is, is that judgment is also coming for us. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for this life. The demons know their day is coming. They know that evil will be eradicated. We question whether or not God is good at times. Let the demons convince you that he is good. They're terrified because they know he is good. They know that evil will be eradicated. We see evil, we see wickedness, we see misery all throughout the world. And it makes us question at times. But I want to assure you that there is a day when Jesus will eradicate every ounce of it. That is our hope. And every single demon inside of this man is well aware of that. So we see with this demon, when Jesus asks him in verse 9, what is your name? The demon responds by saying, my name is Legion, because we are many. Legion is a military term, and it usually connotates around 5,000 fighting men. So when this demon says that my name is Legion, instantly the idea of thousands of fighting men, men who are aligned with Satan, demons aligned with Satan, are waging war inside of this man. My name is Legion, for we are many. And then we get to see with a little bit greater clarity, based off of the demon's name, the extent of God's grace in this man. John Calvin put it this way. He said, what compassion then was it to rescue from so many deaths a man who was more than a thousand times ruined? More than a thousand times ruined. And the truth is that apart from God's protection on our lives, we are not susceptible to one demonic attack. We're susceptible to thousands. We oftentimes overestimate our strength and underestimate our depravity. And Jesus, by pointing to this man, shows that this one man was the host of thousands of demons. But even thousands of demons are not sufficient to overcome Jesus's power and Jesus's goodness. And so now we see the result of this interaction. So in verse 11, we see 
Let me actually back up to verse 10. The demon begs Jesus to not send them out of the region. So there's another begging. You see multiple begging, don't torment me. And he begs, don't send me out of the region. So let me stay here. In fact, there are thousands of pigs over there. Could you just send me into those? And so Jesus, almost surprisingly, requests, or grants this request, excuse me. It, you'd almost think he would say, you're demons, that's what you want. Like, there's no way I'm going to give you that. But he allows it. He grants the request. So why? Why does Jesus grant a request to demons? Those who are violently against him. Why would he grant a request to them? For at least two reasons. One, it's not, it's not to show their mercy, not to show the demons mercy. Their time is coming. So the first reason is because God is going to use it. He's got a time for everything. He sovereignly is working all things for the ultimate good. And so him allowing this to take place, he's using it in some way. And then two is to emphasize his power. It's impressive to exercise a demon, to remove a demon from someone's body. That's impressive. I don't know about you guys. I've never seen that take place. I've heard of it. Um, but if I were to see it, I imagine I would be very impressed and terrified. How much more so to remove thousands of demons? Someone, Jesus removes one demon. You see, wow, he's powerful. Jesus removes thousands of demons. Extremely powerful. If you can lift one pound, you've got some strength. If you can lift thousands of pounds, then you have a lot of strength. So Jesus is using this circumstance. He's allowing this to take place for a reason. And then he's also using this to emphasize his power, to show those around the onlookers, the shepherds, the readers, that he is powerful over the raging storm inside of this man of thousands of demons. And then also something for us to recognize here is that this demon made a request to God and it was answered. And so there is a real temptation for us to believe that because God answered a prayer in the way that we asked, that we are in good standing with God. I would encourage you, don't use that as the litmus test. Because God granted these demons their request. We see in the book of Job, God grants Satan his request. Just because God grants a random request that you may have does not indicate that you are, in fact, in good standing with God. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. There are those out there who I've had interactions with, and perhaps you have too, who say, me and God are good. Trust me, I don't need Jesus. We're good. And there's, I'm sure, multiple, multiple reasons why they would believe that. One of which is that I've heard personally is that God hears me when I pray. I would encourage you, don't use that. God answers a random prayer in your life. Don't use that as the reason why you may believe that you are in good standing 
with God because this demon's request led to its destruction. So the demon is granted the request to go into the pigs and then the pigs plunge into the sea. They're, the sin, the evil, is ultimately going to lead to death and to destruction. And something else to recognize is that this was thousands of pigs. Okay? This was not just like a, a one-off farmer. This is, a, this is a culture where livestock is wealth. And to, to have that much livestock... 2,000 pigs, I mean, you're talking about generational wealth because these pigs are going to make more pigs who will then be able to be butchered, sold to probably Romans in that territory because Jews aren't eating pork. But there's generational wealth here. It's not just a a one-off farmer's lot. It is literally a generational um, level of fortune. And Jesus sees this one man as more valuable than generational wealth. He sees the destruction of all of that as worth it for this one man's soul. There's a devastating price that was paid for this one man. And the reason why we would say that that is, that is so consistent with God is because of a term called the imago dei. It means the image of God. It means that we are made in the image of God. We were made to bring forth his image. We were made to magnify him. When people look at us, they, we should, they should see aspects of God's glory radiating from us, and we have failed at that. We have pursued other things. But God, seeing his image bearer, sees the value behind that. That's why we fight tooth and nail for the value of human life at every stage of life. There's great value behind anyone who bears the image of God. And so now, now that this has all happened, we get to see everyone's response. And this is where it becomes very practical for us. So we see the witnesses, how they respond. We see the demon-possessed man, how he responds. And then we see Jesus, how he responds. So I want us to look at these three different portions of each response. So we are now in uh, that fourth point of the response. So let's look at the witnesses. So we see the shepherds, those who um, own the flock. They, when when this happens, they immediately, um, verse 14, ran off. And reported it to the town. Said, guys, you're not going to believe what just happened. You need to come out here. You need to see this. That guy who was terrorizing our our town, the guy who no one could restrain, thinks something happened. And also, by the way, 2,000 pigs just ran off into the sea. It's kind of crazy. They see this. They tell people. And then they come. And Jesus sees them. And begins to interact with them. And what do they do? They beg. They beg Jesus. So we see now the demon-possessed man. The demons are begging him. Don't torment us, but send us into the pigs. Don't let us leave the region. Let us stay in the region. Send us into the pigs. Now we see a begging from the shepherds. 
and from the townspeople, leave the region. You, this guy who you just got rid of these demons, we couldn't subdue him. You're clearly stronger than him. And we would really prefer not to have another version, just a stronger version of what we just had. And there's some serious power wounds with these people. They've seen a powerful being, and it caused all kinds of destruction. And so when they see Jesus cast out and exercise greater power than this demon was able to do, then what they immediately think is it's going to be worse. This guy's stronger. And they beg him to leave the region. But the problem is they don't see their need. They view themselves as clean. It's also ironic that they beg Jesus to leave the region when the demons just begged him to be able to stay. It's, it would seem strange that this guy exercises power over them. They're like, no, we'll, we'll take these. You seem to be more powerful. We would rather have this because we kind of know what we're dealing with here. We don't know how to deal with you. Like, please leave our region. Even if the demons are still here, please leave. It's because they don't see Jesus for who he is. And they also don't see themselves as unclean. They see themselves as clean. We don't need this man. Yeah, we've got some issues over here. But we don't, we don't need, we don't need this, this man, this guy who's claiming to be the Messiah. In one commentary, it points out how they viewed themselves as clean. It says, if the swine herds were supplying the Roman legions with pork, so if, the, if these herds were providing Roman legions of, with, with pork, these Roman soldiers with pork, then the raising of unclean food for the detested Roman occupation was doubly offensive. So Jews would hate the Romans because they were kind of coming into their territory and exercising dominion. And now they see people raising up pigs, which is also unclean for them to eat, raising up pigs to feed these Romans who they hate. He says, thus Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit, living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, raising swine, all in an unclean Gentile territory. These people are begging Jesus to leave because they think they're clean. They don't see their need for Christ, but they don't realize the magnitude of their uncleanliness. They don't recognize it. So those who are witnesses to what Jesus is doing in the life of this man, they see it, and they say, good for him, but please leave. They know of Jesus, but they really don't know Jesus. It's like knowing about Abraham Lincoln. I know of Abraham Lincoln. I don't know Abraham Lincoln. Or the greatest basketball player ever to live, LeBron James. I know of <laughs> LeBron James, but I don't know LeBron James. Maybe someday. These people, they see what Jesus did. They know of him, but they don't know him because they're unwilling to embrace their uncleanliness. And that's, that's the difference, okay? This is, this is important. That, that's the difference. Hopefully it's all important, but right here. That's the difference between demons who know God and Christians. We both know God. It says the demons believe 
and they tremble. And so right here, this demon-possessed man, if you see in verse 18, this demon-possessed man, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly. So we just now see another begging. So saw the demons beg, we saw the townspeople beg, and now we see this man, this demon-possessed man, begging to remain with Jesus, that he might remain with him. That's the difference, is that the demons know of Jesus, they know who he is, but they beg him to leave. They beg him, get away from me. Let me go into the swine. He comes out, the demon-possessed man kneels, recognizing who Jesus is, and then immediately wants to get out of his presence. Send us away from here. Send us into the pigs. The townspeople come and see, and they see what happened. They recognize what Jesus has done, but they're not changed. They say, go. But the man who was changed, the man who has been healed by Jesus, who has been made clean, these unclean spirits are now gone. He now is a clean spirit. He says, let me remain with you. There's nothing more that I want than to remain with you, Christ. So a question for us this morning is, do you long to be with Jesus? Not just do you know him. Not just do you know some facts about him. Do you spend time reading the word? Maybe you pray as well. Maybe you have a robust reading schedule and you're seeking God. The question is, do you long for Jesus in your heart? Do you desire the Savior? And then also, I just want to point out that as we talk about um, demon possession and as we talk about this man having not one but thousands, I just want to encourage you that if you are in Christ, you have no need to fear demons because the one who is stronger is inside of you. No demon can come in. No demon can overtake you if you are in Christ. Now, if you are not in Christ, I can't give you that promise. So I would encourage you, don't, don't fear demons if you are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, I would encourage you, have a healthy fear and repent of your sin and be washed by Jesus. John Calvin, um, again, said that the shepherds and townspeople cannot endure to have Christ among them. But he who has been delivered from the devil is desirous to leave his own country and follow him. Hence, we learn how wide is the difference between the knowledge of the goodness and the knowledge of the power of God. Power strikes men with terror, makes them fly from the presence of God, and drives them to a distance from him, like we saw with those townspeople and what we saw with the demons. But goodness, goodness draws them gently and makes them feel that nothing is more desirable than to be united to God. Nothing is more desirable than to be united with God. Psalm 27, 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord, one thing. All the things to ask in the world, I've asked one thing of the Lord. It is that it is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. 
See, Jesus knows better than anyone that there is nothing more desirous than to be united to God. He experienced it perfectly. As the second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he was united to God closer and in more intimate ways than what we could ever imagine. And yet, he was obedient to death. He left his privileged place with the Father to exercise his power over sin and the repercussions of sin and the consequences of sin and to show his goodness toward us. Philippians 2 says that Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So if you're questioning God's goodness or God's power today, and some of you are going through some very real things, some very painful things, things that other people aren't feeling right now, things that others may not even know about. And in your darkest moments, your most honest moments, you may question the goodness of God, the goodness of God toward you, or you may question the power of God. And I would encourage you to take those questions. It's okay to have questions, but where you take them is critical. I encourage you to take them to God. Say, help me understand. Help my unbelief. Having a tough time believing this, help my unbelief right now. I also encourage you to consider these two things. That Jesus, he went to great lengths to save one man. He went through, he crossed over the sea, went through a crazy violent storm, entered an extremely unclean region, and then did away with generational wealth for the sake of this one man's soul. He displayed his goodness toward the man, and he displayed his power toward the demons. And then two, that Jesus went to even greater lengths to provide salvation to all those who would repent and believe in Christ. All those who would turn from their sin and agree with God that, yes, I am an image bearer of God. I was meant to image you and reflect you, but I have worshipped other things. I have gone after wealth. I have gone after relationships. I have gone after status and dignity. I have gone after all of the things that this world has to offer, and I have put at one time or another something above you. Jesus shows us his goodness by going to the cross on our behalf, by taking our sin and saying, yes, you have pursued other gods, but I will take the sin. I will take the judgment that you deserve and I will bear it on your behalf. And then he shows his power by conquering death. He took our judgment. That's good. That is such good news. But then he shows his power by 
being resurrected on the third day and showing that he is the first fruits of all those who would repent and believe on Christ, that he is the one who will bring in that resurrected body. You see the resurrection of Christ, and he says he is the first fruits. He's the first, all brothers and sisters who are in Christ will experience this resurrected body because Jesus is good and he's powerful. And so because God has shown us mercy through his goodness and through his power, we must respond. No response is still a response. We must respond with obedience and with faith. So Christian, do you long to be with Jesus? Like the man who had the demons taken out of him, he wanted nothing more than to be with Jesus. Is that, can you resonate with that? If not, I would encourage you, just just bring that to the Lord. He's not going to be offended by you taking that to him. He's going to rejoice over that. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian. You should never feel, feel like you're a bad Christian if you're repenting. Repentance is a sign of health. Bring that to the Lord. And then verse 19, what does Jesus tell the man? He tells him, no. You can't, you can't stay here. You can't stay with me. But go. He says, Jesus did not let him, but told him, go to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. We have an obligation as those whom God has shown mercy to. We have an obligation to go. There are coworkers that we need to have conversations with, loving conversations with. There are people, neighbors, family members that we need to have sometimes difficult conversations with in a loving way. I'm not telling you to go over there and start beating them with the Bible. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need to lovingly engage those whom the Lord has placed around us. We need to share with them the mercy that he's shown us so that they too might be able to embrace and understand this mercy. And then we also need to show humility. This man, he really wanted to be with Jesus. And in order for him to obey, to be obedient, he needed to show some humility. He was begging Jesus to be with him. Jesus said, no, you need to go. And this man shows a humble spirit and goes. And so we today need to show humility. We need to be in God's word, see what God is saying to us, and then humbly submit and obey. And if the God of the Bible um, never seems to challenge you, then you're probably not worshiping the God of the Bible. When you run into passages and you think, oh, that kind of things, that's okay. Bring it to the Lord. Ask him for help. We have the Holy Spirit who is our helper. And so in what ways today, this morning, maybe you resonate with Richard Robinson and his, his paradigm of why there cannot be a God. What ways this morning do you need to be reminded of God's goodness? Maybe it's in the fact that you have health. Maybe it's the fact that you were able to get here some way, somehow. You have some form of transportation. I mean, don't take for granted the fact that you can, you can see, taste, touch, walk. Like these, these are gifts. In what ways do we need to be reminded of God's goodness in our lives? It's easy, especially in the West, especially in a city like Westerville or the suburbs of Columbus, to compare ourselves to others and say, man, God hasn't been good to me. Look at what they have. I encourage you, stop. 
take an inventory of how good God has been to you. How do you need to be reminded of his power? What are some things that he's done in your life that you need to look back on and be reminded of? Maybe you're going through a valley today and you haven't gone to God because you don't believe that he is powerful enough to be able to carry you through that. Go to God. And a non-Christian, today you're here and you just have questions and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. First off, thank you for being here. I would encourage you to consider the goodness that God has placed on your own life. What are some common graces that you have in your life that God has allowed you to enjoy? And then look at, at this passage and look at the last passage, um, Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. The disciples literally asked, don't you care? And in this passage, we see Jesus exercising care again. Just read these passages. Read through the Gospel of Mark and just ask yourself, does God care? Because you may say there's, there's a problem with um, evil in the world. There's a problem with misery. There's a problem with all I've got questions. But the one thing that we can say without a shadow of a doubt, based off this passage alone, but also throughout the whole um, canon of Scripture, is that God, at the very least, God cares. He sent his son. He entered into broken man. Jesus could have stayed with the Father. He could have. And we could have been judged in our sin, and that would have been perfectly righteous of him. But he cares enough to go. And then, don't be deceived uh, to think that you may be in good standing with God just because there have been random prayers answered. I encourage you that to be reminded that the only way that you can be right with God is through Christ. And so in closing, James Edwards um, says this about the passage. The purpose of the healing of the Gerasene demoniac, as with the stilling of the storm on the lake, is not simply to leave readers awestruck at Jesus' power, however, but to prompt them to consider how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Consider that this morning, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. So just as Jesus supernaturally or effectually called and drew this man out of the place of death, out of tombs, if he is calling you this morning to step out of death and into life into Christ, I would encourage you to embrace that call, to take the next step, to talk with any member here about what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus. Talk with me. Anyone would love to have that conversation with you. If he is calling you today, repent of your sin and embrace Christ, the one who is powerful and the one who is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good. Thank you for being powerful. We ask that by your grace, you would help us to remember your goodness and your power. We ask that we be reminded of the ways that you have shown us mercy that we be reminded of the ways that you have been good, ways that you have brought us through valleys. Remind us of the gospel and help us to live faithfully in light of it this week. We ask in Christ's name, amen.